Well, good morning, Living Streams. It's a joy for me to be with you. I'm Mark Buckley, and uh, I've been around here a long time. Some of you I've never met, and I just want to say, for those who have been praying for my wife, Christina, she had a heart transplant this last year. Thank you so much. She's getting stronger and doing really well. And uh, I'm really glad personally to be back in person. And I want to say to those of you who are online, it may be time for you to get back too because there's something special about being with people live and in person where you can touch them or you can hug them if you want to um, or at least connect. Before the service, we had a, uh, a prayer time downstairs at like 7.30 this morning. And um, the Holy Spirit just touched my heart and I began to weep. And I wanted to say to you that what happens behind the scenes at Living Streams is just as significant and sometimes even more powerful than what happens on the platform here. We have a great group of pastors, Dan Reed and Veronica Morrison and Faith Cummings and Kurt Cotter and, and Arthur Lee and David Stockton and, and I last service forgot somebody and I, they were upset at me, but anyway, we have a bunch of them. And we have some great elders and great leaders of our ministries, but um, if, you, if you have a chance to get to know them personally, you're going to be enriched. I just want to say that your life will be enriched. So I'm speaking this morning on what I've learned from the kings. Um, the theme has been a kingdom divided, and obviously there are powerful forces seeking to divide our nation, to divide your family, to divide, to divide you from the Lord. Um, but there are very wonderful lessons we can learn from studying the Old Testament. And a premise I've believed for a long time is one of the vulnerabilities in the United States is many believers have never studied the Old Testament and they don't have a holistic concept of who our God is. They don't know why Christ really had to die because in their mind uh, everybody's a sinner and it's no big deal and they don't understand consequences. We're also going to have communion at the end of the service, so those online, if you grab your bread and cup, and I'm going to pray as we get into this message. Father, thank you for this opportunity. This is the day you've made, and I pray that the power of your Holy Spirit will make your word come alive, and that you will give me grace to speak and give all of us grace to hear what your Spirit is saying to our hearts. In Jesus' name. So we're going to look at three righteous kings briefly. The first one is Solomon. And the lesson I learned from Solomon is that immorality has consequences for everyone. As you know, Solomon started out as a young king, and he's praying for wisdom. And God saw his heart, and he knew that Solomon wanted to be a great king, and he had a lot of decisions to be made. And so he gave him not only wisdom, he gave him power, he gave him wealth, he enriched his life. King Solomon, it says in 1 Kings 11, verse 1, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sinites, uh, Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. 
As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of his father David had been. There were consequences for Solomon's immorality. And even though he married 700 women, it was actually licensed immorality. There was no intimacy. He probably didn't even know all their names a year later. 700 wives, 300 concubines, which were basically sex slaves. And uh, he thought because he was so powerful, so he was so wealthy, so many women were attracted to him, um, that uh, he would be invulnerable. But he wasn't any more invulnerable than any of us are. Immorality fragments the hearts of men, and it darkens our minds and our hearts to God. And when your heart and mind is darkened, you make bad decisions. You, you lose the ability to really connect on an interpersonal level that brings fulfillment in a relationship. And instead, it's just, it's about sex, or it's about power, or it's about possessions, uh, the things that are temporal and not really fulfilling in the long run. So Solomon had consequences, and I believe our society is at a threshold. I lived through the 60s, the peace, love, and, and rock and roll era, and I had consequences for my immorality, but I've never lived in a time in the United States when immorality was promoted the way it is today. Christina and I were watching a Netflix, and in the upper corner at the beginning of the series, it had the, the little warning labels. It said, language, smoking. So we were watching to make sure if anybody smoked, you know, that we'd be ready. But regardless, what struck me was the fact that it was full of immorality. I mean, uh, men with all kinds of different women, women with all kinds of different men, women in bed with other women. But that's all normalized. That's all almost celebrated in our culture as if we're being liberated from the shackles of the past. Now, I have real concerns because I know there's going to be a tidal wave of consequences, mental illness and, and divorce, and, and, and I think pornography is a spinoff of that, and it, it creates a diminishing of the soul of men who are made in the image of God. But it also says in Psalm chapter 2 that when the kings want to throw off their shackles, he who sits in the heavens laughs. It's like the Lord isn't in a panic about our society. He laughs because there is no other way to bring fulfillment other than to learn how to love one another, serve one another, stay faithful in a covenant relationship. That's what builds a healthy marriage. That's what builds a healthy family. That's what brings up healthy kids. That's what brings the blessing of God. And if people want to experiment, as they have over thousands of years, he who sits in the heaven laughs and waits. Um, second thing I want to get into, the second king is Hezekiah from 2 Kings chapter 18. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. Skipping to verse 5, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. Hezekiah was a righteous king. What he did was pleasing in the eyes of God. 
He, he was pleasing to God, and God blessed him. Now, here's the illusion that many people have, and I, I had this to a certain extent myself. The illusion is this, that if we're pleasing to God, we definitely don't have to worry. I mean, I, I had three kids and no life insurance. Um, I had... Um, four kids and no health insurance. Because I thought, since I was living this life that was pleasing to God and following Jesus, I just really didn't have to worry about that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? I, I, I had a, a divine protection, hedge of thorns, prayed over me, and everything was going to be fine. And here's what happens to Hezekiah in 2 Kings 18, verse 13. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Shennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. The fortified cities were the outlying cities that, that protected the nation from the initial attacks so that they didn't get, the bad guys didn't get all the way to Jerusalem. So Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent his message to the king of Assyria at Lashage. I've done wrong. Withdraw from me, and I will pay whatever you demand of me. So here's, here's Hezekiah's first mistake. He assumes because he gets attacked that he must have done something wrong. Something was displeasing to God. If something is in wrong in somebody's life and we assume it's because they're displeasing to God, we are basing our understanding on a false premise. He had done nothing wrong until he starts uh, trying to appease the bad guys, until he starts to apologize to the king of Assyria who's trying to destroy him, and then he makes a, a real deceptive bargain with the king. He said, I'll, I'll pay whatever you demand of me. And then he's, the king of Assyria ex exacted from Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver, 30 talents of gold. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace. At this time, Hezekiah, king of Judah, stripped off the gold which had covered the doors and doorposts of the temple of the Lord, and he gave it to the king of Assyria. In other words, he was going to make a treaty with him. He was going to buy him off. He thought that if he just gives him the gold, gives him the silver, the bad guys are going to go away. In the late 1930s, Neville Chamberlain met with Adolf Hitler. Chamberlain was the prime minister of Great Britain. Hitler had, had built up the army of Germany after World War I. He got the economy going again. And then he went and he took over Austria because it was a German-speaking nation primarily. And then he takes over part of Czechoslovakia. And Neville Chamberlain made a deal with them and said, okay, uh, we, you can't be doing this. You can't go any further. You gotta stop here and, and we'll let you have Austria. We'll let you have part of Czechoslovakia, but you've gotta stop. And Hitler said, oh sure, that'll be just fine. And that gave Hitler time to rebuild his army and, and build up his coffers and prepare for what he really had in mind, which was to dominate all of Europe. And uh, he then, uh, after Chamberlain announces to the whole Western world that he has a peace treaty with Hitler, Hitler makes him look like a fool, just like the Shennacherib, king of Assyria, did to Hezekiah. He went ahead and attacked Hezekiah anyway. He attacked Hezekiah, brings 200,000 guys, and they're now surrounding Jerusalem. They've already got the gold, they've already got the silver, but they want complete domination. They want complete control. You can't make a pact with the devil. You can't make a peace treaty with the evil one or somebody who's motivated by the evil one. Now, I'm not saying this so you start judging everybody, but I'm saying this just so you have a heads up and you have a warning. 
Uh, Hitler didn't keep his pact with Chamberlain. He took over Poland. Uh, then he takes over France, and, and all hell breaks loose in World War II. So Hezekiah learned some things the hard way, but that wasn't the end of what he learned. In 2 Kings 20, in those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah put, son of Amos, went to him and said, this is what the Lord says, put your house in order because you're gonna die, you will not recover. Now, the Lord had actually delivered them through an angelic intervention from the king of Assyria, but after that's all over, Hezekiah becomes sick. Another understanding that we need to have is in spite of the fact that you love the Lord and serve him with all your heart, you may get bad news someday. There isn't a magical formula that you can declare that guarantees that you won't ever get sick. I mean, in the New Testament, Paul said at one point, he said about one of the guys that was serving the Lord with him, he said, thank God that he saved his life. Thank you for the mercy of God the mercy of God. And that's what we're gonna discover with Hezekiah in a moment. Hezekiah is told you're gonna die, you're not gonna recover by the prophet. In verse two, Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Remember, Lord, how I walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. He's like, I don't wanna die. I can't believe you're gonna let this happen to me, Lord. I'm still, uh, who knows how old he was. He was probably 40-something years old at that point. Before Isaiah had left the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him. Go back and tell Hezekiah, ruler of my people. This is what the Lord, the God of your father David says. I've heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will heal you. On the third day from now, you'll go up to the temple of the Lord. And the, my third point is the mercy of God is amazing. Isaiah goes on to say, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you in this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will descend, des, defend this city for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. I'm gonna take care of you, Hezekiah. I have heard your cry. Now, we don't know if he had cancer. We don't know if he had some kind of an infection. We don't know what the disease was. But we do know that he was destined to die till he cries out to God and he gets mercy. And Isaiah said, hey, basically, God just changed his mind. You're going to get 15 more years. Now, this story is profound for me because um, 1979, I'm a 29-year-old pastor. I have a wife and two boys, and Christina's pregnant with our third child. Um, I'm, I'm building our church in Novato, California. Everything is going great. We're having a day of fasting and prayer, like the the couple of days before the 4th of July, I'm literally on my knees in front of the couch in my office praying, and I heard a voice in my heart. And the voice said, I'm going to take you home. I'm like, what? you got to be kidding. What, what is going on? And I got up, I, I, I sat down on the couch, and I was stunned. I was shocked. I felt like God just spoke to me and said that I was going to die. And uh, I'm like, Lord, I, I'm not ready to go home to be with you. I've got a wife and two kids. I mean, what's gonna happen to them? We've got a, a young church. What's gonna happen to them? I, I, I thought I was living a life that was pleasing to you. 
But for the next several days, I, I'm pretty shaken up. I get to church that Sunday morning, and we're, we're praying together before the service, and I'm literally crying, and, I'm, and uh, I'm not telling anybody what I'm dealing with in my mind, but it's like, Lord, are you going to let me live or not? And I remembered the story of Hezekiah. I remembered that Isaiah said he could have 15 more years, and it comforted me. I thought, well, maybe if God gave Hezekiah 15 more years, he'll give me 15 more years. Well, the next day, Christina and I leave for a fishing trip. We left our two boys with my brother and his son and his wife the first time to get away from the boys. We're going to have a third kid, so we're looking forward to a good vacation. We, we literally get out there on the first day of our vacation, and the Volkswagen camper van that we borrowed broke down. It, it needed to be jump-started. So I gathered up some campers, like uh, about five guys, to help me push it, because it's a big van. And uh, Christina's in the driver's seat, and we're pushing the van. And as we're pushing the van, she pops the clutch. It doesn't start. And she puts her head out the window and says, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to turn the ignition on. I'm like, well, that's a little embarrassing, but no big deal, because my wife is really mechanical. She never makes mistakes like that. So all six of us were pushing the van again. We push it as hard. She pops the clutch. It doesn't start. Well, she says, oh, I'm sorry, I had it in reverse. I'm like, oh, this isn't good. Four of the five guys walk away. They leave. You know, like, you guys are disgusting. We're wasting our time. This is our vacation, too. They literally leave. Now it's me and one other guy. Now we're pushing with all our might, and we push. She pops the clutch. It starts up, and I'm hit with this massive headache. I mean massive. I literally fall into the, onto the dirt, and I'm throwing up. I mean, I... I this is horrible. I've never experienced anything like this. Christina gets out of the van, says, what's going on? I said, you better take me to the hospital. I think I'm dying. And uh, long story short, they did a spinal tap. They had to fly me on an air vac back to Marin County. The doctor said 90% of the people who have a brain bleed like this die from it. And, and they just waited it out with me. And by the mercy of God, I did not die. Right? I, I, I knew you would have guessed that, right? But... <laughs> I didn't die. Okay, but that's not the end of the story. Now let's go to one final king we're going to look at, uh, 2 Kings 22. Hosea, Hosea, Josiah, I'm sorry, was eight years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother's name was Jedidiah, son of Adidiah. She was from Boscoth. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed completely the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. Josiah was probably the most dedicated of any of the kings of Israel. Um, Hezekiah was a man of faith. Solomon was a man of wisdom. David was a man after God's own heart. But Josiah was so dedicated. He becomes king at eight years old. He's completely focused. They, they rebuild the temple under his watch. They rediscover the law of God, which hadn't been in uh, circulation for quite a while. They reinstitute the festivals like Passover. They rebuild the city of Jerusalem and surrounding cities. They rebuild the army. He is completely dedicated, doing a phenomenal job. And then he finds out that King Necho is going to go join the archenemy of Israel, the king of Assyria, in a battle against the Babylonians. And he said, hey, hey, I, I, I'm not going to let that happen. 
And in verse, the, the fourth point is getting overextended has serious consequences. 2 Kings 23. While Josiah was king, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up the Euphrates River to help the king of Assyria, the enemy of Israel. King Josiah marched out to meet him in battle, but Necho faced him and killed him at Medigo. Now, I, I've read this. There, there's like four pages in the Old Testament about Josiah and what an awesome king he is. Four pages about what an awesome king he is and one paragraph about a mistake he made and he dies because of that mistake because he gets involved in a battle that God had not called him into. And this was a story that caught my attention and I never really understood it till many years later. Okay, I want to fast forward. It's 1994. Kurt Cotter and I flew up to Bellingham, Washington because a young boy in our church who was my next door neighbor, oldest of six kids, who we had helped raise for three and a half years while his dad was in prison, this young boy was in a coma in the hospital in Bellingham because he had rolled the car he was driving into a pond. The other kids got out of the car and he wasn't able to extract himself for 20 minutes before they pulled him out. So he was in a coma, mostly brain dead. So we go up there and we're gonna pray for him. And I told Kurt on the way up, I said, Kurt, I'm not in good shape at all. I mean, I, I, I'm not in good shape. I had been in Alaska to minister to some parents whose kids had died because our son had died two years earlier. And so I was being called to help other pastors whose sons were in crisis or daughters had died or some stuff like that. I'd been in California at a missions conference when there was a lot of struggles and challenges in this mission conference um, and, and several other trips that left me depleted. I was so depleted that I didn't have the grace for this emergency that I felt like we needed to go into. So we were up there for several days. I should have gone home, but I wasn't wise enough to know that the Lord had not called me to stay there. So Christina, my wife, shows up, and our son Philip shows up, and uh, David Stockton's parents, Billy and Patty, show up, because David was there at the camp too, and we're all sharing this bungalow one night. And uh, they all fall asleep. I can't fall asleep. My mind is just racing. It's just going continually. And uh, I'm hearing fireworks in the distance. And when I'm hearing the fireworks, um, uh, it's keeping me up even more. And then my heart starts beating, and it's just racing. And, it's, and I'm thinking, I'm having a heart attack. I'm about to die, right? And then I, re I start thinking back. For, it's 4th of July. I, I feel like I'm dying of a heart attack. The last time I thought I was going to die was 1979. That's 15 years ago. I had asked God for 15 years. The 15 years is up. I'm not paranoid. I'm dying. <laughs> I, that's, I really thought that. So I go and wake up my son, Phil. I said, Phil, I just want to say goodbye. And he, and he goes, what? I said, I think I'm dying. He says, Dad, you're crazy. Go back to sleep. And... and I think we were both right. I was dying, and I was crazy. You know what I mean? And, and I still couldn't go back to sleep, but the elders found out that I was sort of spinning out of control, and they sent me to a mental hospital for two weeks. 
um, and then to a treatment center for two weeks, and it took, and then four months of sabbatical for me to re get my equilibrium restored, and this church provided an environment of mercy and love and support for me and for our family at a critical time that helped me in a way that has enabled me to minister to people whose lives are spinning out or breaking down ever since by the grace of God. And it's been an awesome spiritual family. And if you think you can get that just from an online experience, I'm telling you, it'll never happen. It happens when your lives get committed and knitted and joined together in small groups and in regular fellowship and opening your heart and being vulnerable together. And it has been life-saving for me. Um, so I've learned that getting overextended can be challenging, dangerous. Not everybody recovers real well because not everybody has the kind of support they need at times like that. So I'm gonna now contrast those kings with the king of kings from Revelation 19. In Revelation 19, the apostle says in verse 11, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now when Jesus walked on the earth, he referenced Solomon. He said, you know, the Queen of Sheba came and others from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, but one who is greater than Solomon is here. Do you know that Solomon was able to tell which of two women were telling the truth and which was lying when they both claimed that the living baby was theirs and the dead baby was the other ones. He could tell who was a liar. But Jesus Christ can take the heart of a liar and turn that person into a truth teller. You know that Moses, when he was on the earth, when somebody was involved in immorality, he brought the death penalty to them. That's how they, they ended the plagues of immorality. But Jesus Christ can take an immoral person and make that immoral person a covenant keeper. I know that because I was immoral. And you who have been immoral can be covenant keepers. I've been married by the grace of God for 47 years, and we enjoy a good covenant together, a good life together, and so can you. It says in Matthew 11, 11, and my, my final point here is, the king of kings makes simple people great. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there's not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What does this mean? Among those born of women, in other words, any person who's got a mom, which includes Moses, the great leader of Israel, includes Hezekiah, the king full of faith. It includes Josiah, the great dedicated king. It includes Elijah, the great prophet. He who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What's that mean? 
So I was out at the golf course a week ago Thursday, and um, I ran into a guy who's a judge, who I've known many years. He was part of our church for a number of years. And um, we're, we're talking, and he says, did you hear somebody stole my golf clubs? And I had forgotten, but he had told me that before. I didn't say anything. And, and he goes, I said, well, did you get some new ones? And he goes, no. As a matter of fact, they caught the guy. They caught the guy, and he was trying to fence the golf clubs. And because the, he was trying to fence them, it's a class four felony, so he's going to prison. But he gave my driver to somebody, so he's making restitution, and I get a check for $17 a month from him, from restitution. And I thought about that, you know, because most of the time, throughout most of my life as a believer, I would have thought, that's so great. We got to stop these golf course thieves, you know. If they take your clubs like that, and he's going to prison, it's going to be restitution. But I had heard a story that very morning in this sanctuary about Adriana Gruber's mom, Celia Clifton. Adriana, when she was young, had gone to a car wash. And when she goes to the car wash, um, she noticed after she gets her car back that somebody had stolen a bunch of stuff out of her car. And, and she's, you know, like grieved, and she goes home and tells her mom. And her mom is this fiery Mexican lady who loves the Lord, hears that the, uh, the thief has taken Adriana's stuff, so she drives straight back to the car wash, goes to the manager of the car wash and says, I want to talk to all of your employees. And the guy shuts the car wash down. He shuts it down and he gathers all 20 or so employees and she starts preaching the gospel. She starts telling them that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins and that she knows they're sinners and he knows they're sinners and we're all sinners, but sinners can be forgiven. And one of the guys starts crying. He's the thief. He cries and he confesses. And the rest of the guys prayed with her to give their lives to Jesus Christ. And after these guys all pray with her, she goes to the car wash manager and she says, that guy that stole the stuff, who's given it back, I don't want you to fire him. I want you to promote him. I want you to promote him because you can trust him now. He's going to follow the Lord. And I wanted to tell my friend, the judge, hey, hold on a second. There is a better way. There's a better way than trying to just eradicate sin through punishment. The tragic case of what happened down in Atlanta was a guy trying to purge his own soul by killing eight people who were involved with him in immoral practices. And, and I'm sure several of the ones he killed had nothing to do with his own immoral practices. He had become a slave to sin as a Christian who had compromised. His church said he was no longer welcome in the church, which is a backstory that I found very sad. His church condemned the action and then they condemned him. We need to condemn sin and we also need to admit that we have all sinned and sinners need the church. We need the church. 
each and every one of us. We need the church to be the agent of God's mercy on the earth. We need the church to proclaim the gospel that Jesus Christ died for every one of us, for the judge and for the thief. Jesus Christ died for every one of us so that we can all be forgiven, so that we can all be transformed. My sister was visiting for the first time in 35 years. Last night she came over for dinner. And I reminded her of what happened 35 years ago. She had been put on an airplane by my brother because her life was in a big mess and sent to live with us. Living Streams had 15 people in it at the time. My sister had a real struggle going on. We welcome her into our home. I had been going door to door, inviting people to living streams. I had been going to the parks and witnessing for Christ. Everything I could to try and help the church grow. And, and I reached a couple of people. My sister Katie comes, and she invites her friend Robin. Robin comes to Living Streams and invites her boyfriend, Ben. Ben comes to Living Streams and invites his friend, J.B. Butler. J.B. Butler comes to Living Streams and invites his parents, Yule and Betsy Butler. Yule and Betsy brother, Butler, invite their friends, George and Mary Ellen Van de Wingard. And they also invite uh, Steve Onaveris. Steve Onaveris was a pitcher for the Oakland A's. George Van de Wingard was the head surgeon at Good Samaritan Hospital. Yule Butler was the head broker at the Shearson Lehman Hutton office. And we went from a dinky little church of nobodies to a, a bigger church with somebodies in it. All because my sister Katie, in spite of the fact that her life was very broken down, decided she would let God use her while she was here. If you focus on why you're disqualified, you'll never do anything for the Lord. But if you focus on what Jesus Christ has done as a gift for you, dying on the cross so you could be forgiven, don't ever tell him what he did was not enough. It was more than enough to forgive us and more than enough to cleanse us so that every one of us can be a recipient of the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the gift of God that makes simple people like us great. All of us, all of us in our own way have something great because Christ is in you.